Well, good morning, Redeemer. All right, you sound Baptist this morning. It's wonderful. So good to be back with you and to be worshiping God together and to behold the the beauty of this room. You know, I was told when we came in that this was the small room, that we'd be a, a little tight, you know. That's a wonderful problem to have. You know, praise God. And uh, the tightness just makes us family, doesn't it? You know, in, in all kinds of ways. It just makes us, it reminds us that we should be close and reminds us that sometimes family is too close. You know, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to be together as God's people. Uh, Pastor Dave, thanks so much for this privilege again to serve with you and to serve with the saints here uh, at Redeemer. You know, the more I come here, the more at home I feel. And you can tell that because I'm starting to dress like, you know, <laughs> this is home. And uh, I'm really encouraged by our time together. So if you would, turn your attentions with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to consider the first three verses of that chapter. They're printed also in your bulletins um, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. Uh, but if you do, look with me in 1 John chapter 3. And as we come to these three verses this morning, uh, I want us to sort of begin with reflecting on something I think is true of life. That is, life is full of questions, isn't it? We go through life and and we find ourselves confronted with with questions all the way through. Some some are questions that are kind of everyday. Some are questions that are really quite profound. So you probably woke this morning, and unless you're like those particularly organized types who iron their clothes the night before and hang them on hangers and don't have to think about it, you, you probably woke up and said, what am I going to wear to church this morning? It's a question. Then the next question was, what am I going to eat for breakfast? Or should I eat for eat breakfast? I'm running late. Should I speed down Sheikh Zayed Highway? Or, you know, you're just always facing questions. But then there are questions that are more profound. Questions that sort of touch us in deeper places. Three questions I want to think of this morning. One is the question, does anyone love me? Does anyone love me? Perhaps that's a question you have asked yourself. And maybe asked yourself multiple times with multiple meanings. So the young single person in their 20s or early 30s or maybe even approaching 40, hears this question with a certain kind of urgency. Does anyone love me? Will anyone love me? Will I marry? Well, that question has a different ring to it when you are 70 or perhaps 80 and you have outlived all your friends and you feel alone and you're wondering, is there anyone left who loves me? Does anyone love me? Second question will be this, what will my future be? Again, we ask that question and it has a different ring to it each time we ask it depending upon the sort of stage of life that we're in. So maybe we're in high school and we're wondering what college and university will I go to? Or maybe you're about to graduate from college and university and your parents are wondering, will they ever get a job? You know, that was funny. (laughs) There you go. Uh, (laughs) 
And then a little bit later, we're older in life. We still have questions about the future, don't we? We still recognize that there's something still ahead, even if we think it's beyond this life. What will be my future? And finally, what should I do with my life? What should I do with my life? Those are the three questions that we want to ask and answer. And each of those questions belong to each of these verses. Um, And so look with me in 1 John 3, 1 to 3. God's word says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is short enough. Let's let's read through it again. Look with me at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure the first question we wanted to consider is does anyone love me see there in verse 1 that there is spoken of in verse 1 an astonishing love We know it's astonishing because of the way John begins that sentence with the word see. Now, see is too weak, actually. Maybe you have a translation that says, behold. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. I I don't know about you, but we live in a world that's so desensitized to everything and, and, and a world that is so raw about everything that astonishment seems rare it's hard to amaze people nowadays because all they do is turn on television they can see all kinds of things with great regularity and great frequency but but there is something yet left in the world that is astonishing namely that god loves us john begins with behold See, or maybe the word look. We're coming down the highway today, coming to church this morning, and riding along in the car, and out of nowhere, a black convertible Ferrari. And you know the first thing I said, Titus, look. <laughs> the Ferrari. He's like, where? I was like, over there. Look. John is now writing this letter and 
right into his view comes the love that the Father has for us. And he steps back for a moment to think about it. And he's astonished. And he's astonished in part because of the manner of God's love there. Not as it is an astonishing love, but it is an adopting love. See what kind of love who? The Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The way God has loved us is, 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 is in this way. He has loved us to such an extent that he has adopted us. He has brought us into his family as his own children. Now, John is struck by this too, and I hope you are as well, that, that this is not something we are merely called. You see what he says? That we are called the children of God? Then he's, it's like this breaks into his thought, and he says, <laughs> and so we are. That's the fact. It's not just our reputation. It's not just a cute name. It's not what we call ourselves. It is who we are. It's a, it's a fact. We are, if we are in Christ, God's own children. He has loved us in such a way that through Christ, he has adopted us as his very own. Beloved, he signed the adoption papers in the blood of his son. And we went from being spiritual orphans dead in our sins. And we went from being rebels against God, running away from him. And and we went from being people who were hostile in their hearts toward God and really unlovely, but not unlovable. Not when it comes to God. He loved us. And Christ gave himself for us. And this is part of what John 3.16 has in mind. Those words that we, we know so well. For God, what? So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. When when John, this same John, writes John 3.16, and he says, God so loved the world, so there doesn't mean the extent of his love or the intensity of his love. It means the manner of his love. He loved the world in such a way. He loved the world in this manner that he gave his son for us. He sent Jesus into the world, clothed in our humanity, To live a life of perfect obedience and righteousness. To satisfy all the righteous requirements of God. Including the righteous requirement of our death because of our sin. And Christ went to the cross. And so he became not only our righteousness before God, but he became also our sin bearer before God. He became our sacrifice to God in order to turn away God's anger over our sin. And he was crucified and he died and he was buried for three days. And three days later, God raised him from the dead so that we would know his sacrifice had been accepted by God. And that justification, our being right with God, would be proven by the resurrection. God loved the world in that way. And in that way, God adopts sinners into his family. And this, beloved, is astonishing. 
It is made. Who will love you? God loves you. If no one else seems to love you, you are not without love. And God's love is not a consolation prize. It's not the prize you get when you're the runner-up on some game show. You know, the winner gets $10 million and, oh, Bob, what do we have for the losers? Well, we have this board game, Bob. (laughs) It's not the runner-up prize. This is the first prize. This is the great reward. This is the bonanza. This this here is, is, well, it's indescribable. That he should love us. And he loves us first. And if we have come to love him, it's because he loved us first. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. You're thinking about Christianity. You're considering what Christians believe. And, and you're kind of curious about how we understand God and what God is like from a Christian perspective. Well, one of the most essential things to understand about God as the Bible reveals him, as he reveals himself in the Bible, is that he is one who loves perfectly. And he delights to love sinners. And this is remarkable because it It frees us, doesn't it, to be honest about ourselves. We hide our sins from one another and we we go about our days effecting some reputation, putting some face before the world that sometimes isn't quite us. And and if we're honest, we, we, we do that because sometimes we don't feel lovable. And we think secretly, if they really knew what I was like, they wouldn't love me. Beloved, God knows exactly what we are like and he loves us still. And he proves his love in giving his son. What more can God do to demonstrate the manner of his love than sacrificing his son for the redemption of sinners? If you're here and you're not a Christian, that's the main thing to fasten your mind to that this God loves sinners and sacrifices for them that they might be adopted into his family. It's an astonishing love. It's an adopting love. But notice also in verse 3, it's it's an alienating love. This is a curious kind of love. So John goes on to say, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. That's striking. Not everybody knows God. Now, there are billions of people in the world, and they make all kinds of claims about the nature of God. And here the Bible just cuts right through it and says, there are many people who do not know God. And because now we have been adopted into God's family, given a place in his family, and we began to sort of resemble the Father as we live in obedience to him, John says a curious thing happens. This love is not only amazing and it's not only adopting, but it's alienating. It separates God's people from the rest of the world, so much so that the rest of the world doesn't quite understand us, doesn't quite recognize us. I mean, why do people from 60 different ethnic groups or more assemble in a hotel ballroom for a couple of hours on a Friday and sing praises to this God and and hear some guy preach for 45 minutes? 
Surely there's a better thing to do with Friday morning. It's what the world thinks. It's strange, they think, that you should believe that this man 2,000 years ago who was crucified by Roman authorities rose from the grave and, and is alive now at the right hand of God the Father and is coming again to gather his people. And, and so you, you live a certain way in anticipation of that day of his, his coming. There are things you do and things you don't do, and they seem to be really quite opposite to the, the things that the rest of the world does and doesn't do. You love your enemies. You bless those who persecute you. you. You give of your possessions rather than seeking to possess more. They don't recognize you. And the reason they don't recognize you is because God's love has been effective in your life in transforming you, in changing you, in making you more like him and distinguishing you ever increasingly from the world. It's a strange thing to be a Christian. You know that, right? I mean, it's exquisite. And it's not to be traded for anything. But it is strange in the eyes of the rest of the world. You, you spend your lives, maybe, you feel, maybe it's just me, but, but I feel like sometimes I, swim, I, feel my, I, I live my life swimming upstream against the current of the world. I once saw this documentary about uh, Salmon in the Northwest United States, in Washington State and areas like that, how, how salmon swim upstream and return to the place where they were born to lay their own eggs. They do this over the course of their lives. So they spend part of the, their life swimming downstream. And then at some point, they, they know that it's time to go back and lay eggs. So they turn around and they swim upstream. And, and they showed in this documentary how they were swimming upstream. And they would jump up out of the water. They would swim upstream. They'd jump up out of the water. They'd swim. That's a little bit like the Christian life. You know, before you were a Christian, you were carried downstream with the currents of the world, doing everything that the world did. Then Christ grabbed you. He put a hook in your heart, and he started reeling you back home. And you turned against the stream, and, and you feel yourself like this. You know, and every once in a while, you jump out of the water, and you, you're swimming upstream. And sometimes the devil would make us think that that's abnormal. That surely what God would want you to do is just go with the flow. No, 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 no. You're strange. You're alien from this world. And it's because God has loved you. And you, beloved, are swimming home against the current of all of this world. And you can feel that current in your marriage. You can feel that current with your children. You can feel that current in the workplace. You can feel that cross current in almost any area of life. And as you feel those waters rushing against you, be reminded of this. God has loved you and made you strange and you're on your way home. Who will love you? God will love you better than you can imagine. And here's the promise of Romans. Nothing will separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Which brings us to our second question then. What, what will be my future? Well, I've been hinting at it already, but it's there in verse 2. 
John goes on to say, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I just absolutely love this verse. There's just, this is a theologian's playground, right? John here captures something for us about the Christian life that we too want to understand. That, that the Christian lives in a strange space. Between the now and the not yet. There are some things that are true of us now, and there's some things that are not yet fully true. And we experience both the nowness and we look forward to the not yet. Do you see it here? Verse 2 We are God's children when? Now. Right now. We are God's adopted children. But read the next of it. He says, And what we will be has not yet appeared. There's something true of us right now, which we can discern and lay our hands on, but there's something coming that is even more glorious that eye has not seen and ear has not yet heard. There's something coming that God has prepared for us that is even more glorious than the fact that we are right now God's adopted children. And we live between those poles, between what God has already done in our lives to to make us his children and what God will finally do on that great day when he brings his kingdom. Theologians call this inaugurated eschatology. That's a $10 word for already, not yet. But many of us come from countries that have inaugurations when a, when a president or uh, perhaps even a, a ruler or a king first takes office. There's, there's normally some kind of celebration. There's some kind of gathering where the person is sworn into office and takes certain oaths and, and the people rejoice and celebrate. We have it every four years uh, in Washington, D.C. It's just an excuse for a party, really. But, you know, so you have the inauguration. And the president, he's been elected already. He's already president. And, and, and the inauguration doesn't make him president. It, it, it just sort of recognizes that something has began. His, his term as president has, has begun, but, but we don't yet know what kind of president he's going to be, right? So we're all happy. Yay, the president's been elected. But then 100 days later, we're like, man, I should have voted for the other guy. <laughs> We don't know what kind of president he's going to be. And so it is with the Christian life. It's been inaugurated. The party in heaven occurred when one sinner repents, Luke 15 tells us. All of heaven is rejoicing. All of heaven is glad. All of heaven is celebrating at the saving work of God, which inaugurates our life in his kingdom. But we're not yet fully in the kingdom. We live between the already and the not yet. And in that already not yet space, there are some things that we know, some things we're going to discover. So notice what John says in verse 2. What we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be has not yet appeared. That's good for my soul when I'm struggling in some particular way. Anybody have fits of doubt? Anybody struggle to lay hold to Christ with a more confident faith 
and struggle not to be shaken by various things? Anybody struggle with a sin that they hate and yet can't quite shake? They, they don't want to do the thing, but they find themselves doing it. And the things that they want to do, those things they don't do. That Romans 7 kind of experience. And when you see yourself in that sin, struggling with that sin, when you feel that temptation rising in your heart and you can feel your spiritual teeth gritting and your jaws locking, trying to refuse the, the coming on suasion of temptation, and you begin to kind of despair, what we will be has not yet appeared. Remind yourself that God has began a good work in you and he will carry it on until the day of completion. And when will that day be? Well, it's the next thing there. (laughs) But we know that when he appears, that's the day of completion. When he appears, we shall be like him. We can't imagine what it's like to be like him. But we know that when he appears, we will see him and we will be like him. I love songs. I love Christian songs that help us meditate on the day of Christ when we shall see him. I can only imagine when that day comes and the songwriter says will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall will I sing hallelujah will I be able to sing it all I can only imagine we we sang of it a little bit earlier in the service in in one of our songs see if I can find it you shouldn't do this when you're preaching It's in one of our songs. (laughs) No, Glenn, don't help me. I'm good. There we go. Come now, fount of every blessing. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed then in blood-washed linen, How sing thy sovereign grace. I mean, when we sing words like that, I hope your heart fastens onto it. I hope you you gather the truth of verses like that because they are attempting to sort of, in song, push us into the truth of prose like verse 2. We don't know what we will be, but we do know this, that when we see him, we shall be like him. And isn't that the, the desire of the Christian's heart? To be like Christ, the one we long to see. That's that desire that runs all the way through the Bible, really. Psalm 17, verse 15, David says there, I, when I awake in my righteousness, I shall see you and be satisfied. The the process of seeing the face of Christ is, is a process that satisfies eternally the soul. How many of us are unsatisfied with life? Anybody know the pangs of dissatisfaction? Beloved, that day when you see Christ, you will no longer know what it's like to be unsatisfied. And isn't this Moses' great wish and prayer in Exodus 33, I believe it is. He says, Lord, I want to see your glory. 
And God says to Moses, you can't look at me and live, man. But I tell you what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass over you and you'll see the hind parts of my glory. You'll see the afterglow of my glory. And Moses is in that rock and God passes over him. And the glory of the Lord passes by. And Moses, the man of God, is all he wanted to see. And the Jewish mind understood that this was the greatest blessedness imaginable. So God, in in number six, I think it is, he tells Moses how to bless Israel. And you remember that blessing? He, He says things like this. May the Lord lift up his countenance toward you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The highest joy imaginable to the biblical mind is seeing the face of God. And the great promise that we have is that we will see the face of God, that we will behold him. And something unimaginable happens in that very instant that we behold him. It transforms us to become like him. Imagine that. Seeing such splendor and glory and radiance and purity and beauty in such infinite magnitude that it floods the being of the beholder and transforms them into the one they behold. Don't we get an illustration of this? with Moses on the mount for 40 days in the glory of God and he comes off that mountain and his face shines with the glory of God. What will it be? What will our shining be when transformed we behold Christ not for 40 days but for eternity? Whatever is your weary labor, whatever is the fatigue of your soul, whatever is the stumbling and the struggle of your Christian life, it will not always be. You are becoming, by God's grace and the work of His Spirit, you are becoming just like His Son. And when you behold Him, that process will be complete and you'll be forever what God intends. Now, this is to have a practical effect in our lives. It it helps us to answer our third question. What should I do with my life? Verse 3, John gives us the therefore of verses 1 and 2. He says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
In other words, everyone who's looking forward to the coming of Christ and looking forward to the day of seeing Christ and looking forward to being transformed into the likeness of Christ, everyone who embraces the fact that they are right now children of God and there is something coming that is unimaginable and undescribed but, but is surely coming, as surely as the words John uses in verse 2, we know that we shall be like him. Everyone who has that hope has the experience of verse 3. They purify themselves. They grow in holiness. They grow in sanctification. They grow in Christ-likeness. They do it, number one, by having that hope. That, That very hope has an effect in time. That very hoping in the coming of Christ and being like Christ, it does something to change us, doesn't it? It changes our desires. When we hope to be with Christ and we look to his coming, we are less attracted to the things of this life. We, we don't look for our satisfaction in the, in the things of this world. We, we don't settle for the, for the baubles and the trinkets of a, of a world that's passing away. We have a hope beyond this life. It, it changes where we place our happiness, Right? We, we, we don't place our happiness or our joy on, on our bookshelves or, or in our wallets or on, on our desk with our name plates. That, that doesn't, that's not the source of our joy or our happiness anymore. We, we place our joy in heaven beyond the reach of all of our enemies. Safe in Christ. Hid in Him. This hope has a way of lifting us heavenward. It has a way of helping us to break the the gravity of this life and this world, that our souls might, might soar toward what it yearns for. But now there's a second way this hope works. It, it works not just in our affections, not just in, in our frame of mind. It doesn't merely turn our hearts and our thoughts heavenward as it surely does. As we're told in Colossians 3 to, to, set, our, to set our minds on things above, it surely does that. But then it also gets really practical. If this is our hope, then we begin to do things to further that hope, to protect that hope, to prepare for that hope. The Bible uses phrases like this, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is him who is at work in you to willing to do his good pleasure. So we begin to work out some things. We've now come to Christ. We're now a child of Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God. Now we have to grow up in that household. We have to mature in the, in the things of God. And so we began to read our Bibles, for example. And we commit ourselves to that time. Not merely as a duty, but as a joyful hope. We're preparing for something. And, and we begin to pray, and, and we learn to pray, and, and we ask people to teach us to pray. We don't, we don't sort of know how to pray automatically. Even the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And, and so we grow in our confidence in prayer, and, and we get our prayer closets, and, and we devote ourselves to talking with Jesus and, and hearing from Jesus in prayer, all in preparation for that day when we shall see him. And be like him. 
And, and we gather as a church and we commit ourselves to hearing God's word. And we, we love the hearing of God's word. And we, we take our Thursday nights and, and, and we use them not as a night for, for partying or, or, or doing other kinds of things that are worldly. But we use our Thursday nights to prepare our hearts for Friday mornings. We, we go to the sermon card and we see the text that's being preached on that Friday. And so Thursday night, we, before we go to bed or at some point over dinner, we, we read that text and we discuss that text and we pray through that text and we come ready to hear God's word. That we might grow in our understanding and our likeness. And not just Thursday night and Friday mornings, but, but Friday evening and, and Saturday and, and Sunday. And we gather with God's people to meet one-on-one or to meet in small groups. Why do we do that? What's going on in your small group? It's not just fellowship. It's not just hospitality. But you are plotting together to prepare together for that day when Christ will come. That's why you meet. That's why you encourage each other. That's why you correct each other. That's why you send notes of, of encouragement. And, and that's why you have coffee. And, and that's why you share your burdens. All of that disciple making is actually family work. It's what the adopted children of God do in preparation for the return of their elder brother. whom when they see him, they will be like him. You purify yourself as you look for the day of his coming. You purify yourself as you apply the means of grace to your life. And again, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I, I, don't, I don't want you to be confused about something. Let me try to clarify something real quickly. It's not that you purify yourself and then you are worthy of God's love. No, no, no. Notice the order of the text. It's precisely the opposite. God loves you. And based upon his love, you purify yourself. In other words, you you can't earn your way to God's approval and God's love by being religious. By doing religious things. By even doing good moral things. You should do those things. You, you should not in any way be discouraged from being a good moral person. But being a good moral person will not satisfy the perfect righteousness of God. There is enough sin in your life. There's enough sin in my life. Even as, as good people to condemn us for all of eternity. And God will do that. He will condemn us. He will judge us for our sins because he is holy. He is infinitely holy and he will not wink at our sin. So however good you have been, I'm sure if you're an honest person with yourself, you will admit that, yeah, I do some good things, but there are bad things I do too. And it's those bad things that will disqualify you from God's acceptance. And that's true of all of humanity. And so something must be done to cover your sins so that you might be accepted in the presence of a holy God. And the something that must be done is not anything that you can or ever will do. The something that must be done is done by Jesus. He obeys God's law perfectly and he dies as a sacrifice to make up For our sin. He takes your judgment and my judgment upon himself. 
so that if we believe in him, we no longer have to fear God's wrath. We no longer have to fear God's judgment because every anger, every angry judgment, righteous, holy, angry judgment that God has toward us in our sin, he has now poured out on Jesus, his son. And so now if we are in Christ, if we believe in him, he turns to us in love. You need the covering of Jesus' sacrifice in order to experience God's love. And once you've experienced God's love, it will begin to produce in you this purity that we're discussing. Be sure to keep the order right because that's the essence of the Christian faith. First comes God's love, which makes us his children. Then comes God's likeness in sanctification. What an amazing love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Beloved, let me end with a simple exhortation. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with all your strength. Seek him if you trust in Christ as a child already adopted and accepted. If you've not yet come to trust in Christ, seek him as one whose eternal soul faces his eternal judgment apart from Christ. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ. He's near. Let's pray together. Father, we sang just a moment ago, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take our hearts, O Lord. Take them and seal them. Seal them to thy courts above. Lord, we've sang that and we've heard you exhort us to that very idea in this letter that we who hope in you would purify ourselves and so we pray that you would lift our eyes heavenward that you would lift our hearts heavenward and that you would fix our eyes and fasten our hearts on your throne in anticipation of your coming and we pray O lord that you would purify us make us holy as you are holy Put to death the remaining sin, O Lord, in our lives. Grant, O Lord, that we would live in a a more complete consecration to you. Grant, O Lord, that our hearts would burst with hope. That when we see you, we will be like you. Give this hope, O Lord, to those who came, questioning who would love them and what their future would be like and what they should do with their lives. Give this hope to them, O Lord, we pray. And spread this hope, we ask, to every nation and tribe and kindred.
that the world might know that you are the God of love. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.